0: Hello, I'm Paul Cuddy and welcome to this special Read All About It podcast series, The 12 Days of Bookmas. Do you see what I did there? And here's what you can look forward to. 12 days, 12 guests and a whole host of great book recommendations, as each guest chooses their favourite fiction and non-fiction read of 2020, while I also choose a book I've enjoyed reading this year. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about this special Read All About It podcast series. Hello and welcome to the 12 Days of Bookmas, a special podcast brought to you by the We Got All About The Podcast. And today I'm delighted to be joined all the way from Japan by Ian Maloney. Ian, welcome to the 12 Days of Bookmas. You are the furthest flung guest and uh, the wonders of Zoom have brought us together.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back on. It's uh, Yeah, I've been listening to this series and it's, it's really exciting. It's uh, a good um, special seasonal thing you've got going on here. So thanks for inviting me back.
0: Did you know it's funny when I was just ahead of us having this chat. And I was thinking, obviously, when we met for the original podcast, we were able to do the interview face-to-face. You were over in Glasgow promoting your memoir, The Only Gaijin in the Village. That night, I went to see you at the Mitchell Library as part of the i Festival. Yeah. And you were almost, I think, the last event because the very next day, everything was cancelled you know, yeah. because of COVID. So the one way you, know, you were able to go over and promote the book, frustrating as well because I'm sure there was loads of other things lined up yourself and be the publishers to to promote
1: your memoir it wasn't great time and I mean I was lucky as you say in that I got a couple of events done before everything shut down you know I've got friends whose books came out like a week later and they just they just had absolutely nothing and it took a while as well for the the online stuff to kick in for people to to get like this using zoom and doing that kind of thing so there was a bit of a lull but in another way I was I was really lucky that because w- once I right, shut down and, and everything else shut down, I basically changed my flights and legged it out of Scotland and got back to Japan a couple of days before they closed the border here. So sort of, I was I was doubly lucky and I got a couple of events, but I also got back in time because um, Japan closed its border until about October. So I'd have been stuck away from home, but at home in Scotland, as it were. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the memoir, obviously... You know, I really love reading it, but I think it got a really good response when it came out. How how has it been then over the last few months in terms of the response to it, and have you been able to do anything else remotely? And um,
1: it's it's been good, yeah. It's it's been received well, which is which is gratifying. It's really nice feeling seeing that. Um, it's it is frustrating as as all writers must feel just now that we can't get out and be in bookshops and actually talk to people. Um, but you know, it has been quite good that people have been trying to adapt and doing events online and people have kind of become used to it hopefully it will continue into the future like once we're back in bookshops um you know I, I did an event a couple months ago now with a couple other writers one in England one in Scotland and me in Japan doing a nice kind of panel discussion normally like under normal circumstances that would be impossible nobody would even think to organize that but now the technology is is sort of widespread hopefully that kind of thing will continue in the future and we can do you know, international book events regularly.
0: Yeah, certainly from from my point of view, in terms of the podcast, as I say, prior to, to the lockdown, I was trying to get guests face-to-face. It's a different kind of interview, and I, I always prefer that, but it's allowed me then to, to widen the scope of who I can speak to, because everybody's on Zoom. And so, as you just say, there's positives and negatives, although I think everybody's looking forward to, you know, the first time you can go back into a bookshop and listen to an author Talking about the book
1: and reading from the book, oh absolutely yeah i mean i have spent a silly amount of money this year on books um one one of the things I've been doing, because 'cause I'm aware you know I, I've got a day job as well, so not being able to do events hasn't impacted me too badly in in that side of things, but a lot of writers and a lot of artists, musicians, and things have been really badly hit by this, you know their their earnings have gone. So I've spent most of the year like buying things from small presses and independent bookshops and directly from writers sort of trying to, you know, help people out a bit. And that's been great, but it's still not quite the same. Like going on a a website and a WordPress site and buying something with PayPal and waiting a week or two because I'm in Japan. So it takes a while to come to get my poetry chat book landing on the doormat, it's still not quite the same as going into a shop and rifling through them and taking a stack to the counter. I do miss that. I'm looking forward to being able to do that again.
0: Now, in terms of the format of these smaller podcasts, I ask each guest to choose their favourite fiction and non-fiction read of 2020, and then I choose a book that I've read over the past year. And again, and similar to the main podcast, it's, it's always quite an agonising choice when you have to kind of whittle it down. And if I tell people that half an hour before we started recording, you'd message me and say, is it okay if I changed my choices? That'll tell you how difficult it was
1: for you. This is so much worse than the regular podcast. Like the regular one, I sent you a list a couple of weeks in advance saying, right, this is what I'm doing. And I didn't change it. I was just, yeah, these these are my five books. I've been going back. I've, I had a, an A4 list at one point because I, I use um, Goodreads to keep track of what I'm reading over the year Because I, I read a lot for um, reviewing and as an editor. So I read a lot of, manuscripts that haven't been published so i end up losing track of what i've actually read so goodreads is great for that so i was going back through the list and kind of going oh that one's brilliant i want to talk about that oh no that one and that one and ended up with this huge list so yeah half an hour before i was like i actually know i want to change my mind probably shouldn't say what which ones i i didn't choose in the end the writers might be listening so well listen
0: as long as, as, long as it's half an hour before as long as you don't message me half an hour after but <laughs>
1: yeah let's do it again
0: the the first book i was going to want to talk about and it's your non-fiction choices it's your favorite read of 2020 and the book is the most dangerous book by kevin birmingham it's the subtitle the battle for james joyce's ulysses you had mentioned that originally when you were messaging me what what was it about that book that stood out for you
1: There's a few things, um, this and my fiction choice as well. Like we were just talking, you know, about about books this year and reading and and that kind of thing. This year's been, with the lockdown, when it started, everybody sort of said, oh great, this is going to give me time to write and give me time to read and catch up and all these things. And for a lot of people, me included, that's not how it worked out. sort of the stress of it and the reality of, you know, suddenly not being able to do anything normally. Sort of took its toll over the years. So I didn't read much, and I think a, a lot of your guests have spoken about this as well. Certainly, initially, I I didn't read much, and it took me a long time. Like I was still reading for work, but the sort of pleasure reading, I didn't really do. I got into watching Marvel movies, which I don't particularly like comic movie, comic book movies and stuff. I just couldn't concentrate. But this one and the fiction book I'm, I'm going to talk about later are both sort of their books about books and so they're books about the power of literature and the power of reading and why it kind of matters. And reading both these books really sort of got me back into reading and got me loving books again in a sense. So that, that's why I ended up like 30 minutes before changing my mind and, and want to talk about these. This one in particular, um, I picked up at the start of the year. I've long been a, a huge fan of James Joyce. I read Ulysses when I was at must have been my last year at high school. I read Ulysses um in a copy. I think Statute of Limitations means I can tell the story in a in a copy of Ulysses that I nicked from my school library when I was a kid. The school doesn't even exist anymore, so I'm sure it's fine. Um I've still got it, you know, stamped with the, the school's name. But I just fell in love with it. All of James Joyce's books. Apart from Finnegan's Wake, that's a whole different thing. I loved Ulysses and then in university I did when I was doing English Lit, I did my dissertation on it and Absolutely adore the book. And this this book by Kevin Birmingham is sort of the story of um, the publication of Ulysses, which was very, very fraught. It was serialised first and then nobody would touch it. It broke obscenity laws because it it goes into graphic detail about um, using the bathroom and sex, all these things that in in the 1920s people didn't write about in, in regular literature. So it was a very painful birth for Ulysses, and this this book is the story of that. So it's not really a story of the novel itself and the contents of it, although it does sort of go into that. It's more about like all the, the booksellers and the small press publishers and lawyers and people around the world, particularly in, in Europe and America, who made sure that Ulysses actually got published and was, was made available for people to read.
0: Because when I was just checking upon the book, and what was interesting to me was... Apparently, it was awarded, I think, when it was published, the Truman Capote Award, which apparently is the, the, the largest financial award for a book on literary criticism in the English language. Mm-hmm. I think the University of Iowa oversee it. And his mm-hmm. book was the first book that won the award as a, as a first-time book by, by a writer, which I kind of suppose gives you a sense of, of its quality. I have to admit as well that I i have never read Ulysses. Um, I've got a copy which somebody gave me as a, a leading gift over 20 years ago when I left a job and Christo and I are going to be doing a podcast on the 31st of December where we've just decided we're going to talk about five books we're going to read in 2021 and this is one of the books that I've chosen as that I want to right. to read it but you've probably heard from podcasts some people will choose it as a book they love some people have had more difficulty with it but it's one of those ones you know that way I just feel it's a, it's a book I, I need to read.
1: Yeah it, it does have a, a tough reputation and it is it is hard in places it's a, it's a long book and it it's not an easy book but it's I think if you try and read Ulysses the way you would read like a crime novel or a thriller or something you'll just hit a brick wall it's it's not that kind of book it's it's a book you sort of wallow in you sort of get into it and float there and just enjoy the language and the references if you can get them all like I don't I I've I've read Ulysses a few times with like the guides to Ulysses that talk about oh th- this reference comes from Dante and this reference comes from Chaucer. goes straight over my head no idea what it is but it's also you know it's also just a great story of um people in in Dublin on that day and it's it's very very funny it's a hilarious book and um, the BBC did an adaptation of it a few years ago that Really brought out humour. Like if you don't believe that Ulysses is funny, seek out the BBC adaptation, and it's it's just hilarious. So yeah, you're gonna have a good 2021 if that's if that's on your list.
0: Well, my plan is uh, I've, I've got some time off right at the start of the year, so my plan was or, or is is just to spend a bit of time, and I say not just sitting reading it at night, but maybe just taking an hour or so during the day and, and kind of take well, then take it on board what you're saying in terms of not reading it as as I would maybe a like, conventional type novel and. I'll just see can let you know how I got on with it.
1: Yeah, do another podcast in a year.
0: I mean the, the test might be if I have managed to finish it and then want to go and get Kevin Birmingham's book then then it's it's a wonder <laughs> for me.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's you know the Kevin Birmingham book is is definitely worth checking out. It's it's well written and it's it is kind of a thriller in a sense because of the censorship in America in the 1920s. You know they they're smuggling books in from Canada. They're putting them in plane It treating it as like pornography, basically, isn't these Brown envelopes and slipping it to people um, under cover of something else. You know, the post office and the police and things are chasing them around, trying to track these copies down. It's it's an exciting story, as well as sort of, as I say, reaffirming the reasons why we all love books and love reading.
0: The book that I've chosen for this podcast is a, is a book called The Order of the Day by a French writer called Eric Villard. And... I'm not quite sure if it's a novel. I've read a couple of reviews where in French it would be described as a receipt, excuse the pronunciation, which is basically a translation, an account. And it's a kind of fictional account of factual events in the Second World War Germany from the the early 30s, kind of leading up to 1938 and the annexation, the Anschluss of Austria. And it was one of those books that it's quite a slight book, I think it's only about 150 or 60 pages. And there was two or three times when I would into the bookshop and it was there and I would pick it up and I would have a, I read it, you know, just the, the synopsis in the back and then I put it back down. It took me a wee while before I actually bought it and I'm not sure whether, just because it was a slight book, I wasn't quite sure about it. And even after I read it, I wasn't sure. I kinda, in, my, in my head I thought, I think I've read something that's just absolutely stunning. But then I wasn't, you know, that way I wasn't quite sure. And I had to go back through it again, just to, it was almost as if I couldn't quite believe I had read this book, which was just so slight, but so beautiful and so clever. And basically, it's this kind of set up towards the kind of rise of the, the Nazi party. Uh, so it starts with a, a meeting just prior to, to 1933, the election, which effectively ushered in Hitler's dictatorship. And it's basically a meeting that Hitler and the top Nazis have with all the top industrialists in Germany. and it's quite. Chilling because basically they're asking them to finance the Nazi party by saying we'll get rid of communism, we'll destroy the trade unions, and we'll bring in this period of economic prosperity. So basically, all things that all businesses love, and in return, just do finances and we'll make sure that happens. And that kind of bookends the book. And what's quite chilling is the names of these companies are the names that built post war Germany and are still here today. So it's like I took a note of them BASF, Bayer, Opel, Siemens. Allianz, Tyson, Krupp, they financed Nazism. Now, they obviously, they, they don't like, you know, don't mention the war. You know, <laughs> they talk about it once we get away with it. But that's that's the chilling aspect, and, and it's quite calculated of war paid off for them. The other One of the other aspects is, and again, he takes historical figures and then, you know, almost imagines what happened. So it's the relationship that, the increasingly fraught relationship that the Austrian government president and the, the chancellor have with Germany and they're basically coerced into well welcoming Germany with open arms. Newsletters basically, if they hadn't, then Germany would have just invaded them anyway. They effectively, yeah. did, uh, which is really clever in how people in positions of power like in Austria think that they're in control, but actually they're they've been outmaneuvered. And then the third aspect is what's happening in Britain at the time. Ribbentrop, who was the who became the foreign minister in, in Germany, he's. the verge of leaving he was uk ambassador at the time and it's tied in with how he's dealing with the english the british government and again how they're manipulating the situation in order to to advance the german cause and the march towards war and there's a brilliant line in it where and again i've I've seen in a few reviews where the says great catastrophes often creep up on us in tiny steps and that's what that novel says, you know, that everybody knows the big story of the Second World War, but this is taking it in minute details, but they are absolutely crucial to what actually unfolded. And as I say, it's, once I kind of allowed that to settle, I thought, that is a stunning book.
1: Yeah, I hadn't heard, of, I'd heard the name before you You mentioned that that you were going to talk about it today. So I did a bit of reading around it and as soon as I started reading about it, um, I went and ordered it because it just looks fantastic. Um, but a lot of the reviews that, that I read were saying it's quite, there's a lot of echoes with what's happening in the world now with Trump and things like that. Is that, is that right? Is that a fair comment?
0: I suppose it's a different world because I was thinking about that as well because, and I suppose it's any time, you know, dictatorships, you know, they're ushered through democracy, but also economically trying to think of it in a British context to an extent, you know, because you keep reading, you know, particularly in the Brexit context, and as we're talking, Britain seems to be on the precipice of this disastrous no deal. And you you keep hearing signs that basically people have financed Brexit behind the scenes. And that's why it's going to happen, because it will pay off for them. And what's going to happen in a post-no deal world in the UK is going to be things like higher prices, fewer jobs. And so people will, you know, their working conditions. Behind the scenes, there's some some of these profit out of the misery of millions, and and maybe not to the extreme of going to war, but I, that's I think those are the, the those are the kind of echoes that you see. That even with Trump, I'm sure that you offer economic prosperity, and enough people buy into it.
1: Yeah, disaster capitalism. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, but it's it's an amazing book. But it's it's about that kind of thing. Um, you know how companies make money out of these kind of disasters, and um, you know Jacob Rees Mogg's hedge fund moving to Dublin in advance of uh, the huge windfall that's coming their way.
0: I mean, I think you see it. You know, obviously more blatantly in terms of certainly over here the kind of procurement scandal, which again people don't seem to be bothered about. It's basically money and jobs for the boys. If you've got a connection to the Tory party, quads in for you. But as I say, that's part of the day. I think I you'll really enjoy it. it is and like because what chilled me was when I mentioned those companies, and yeah. you know they obviously did help build post-war Germany, and they are still alive and thriving.
1: Yeah, and if you're a, if you're a football fan, as as we both are, there's there's a lot of names there that crop up quite a lot in the, in the big leagues around the world, around Europe, certainly. So absolutely, yeah, it's terrifying.
0: The other book that you've chosen in terms of your favourite reads of 2020, and that's a, a fiction choice. And the book is The Investigation by Young Young Lee.
1: Yeah, that's right. Young Young Lee, translated by Chi Young Kim. Um, it's a South Korean writer. My wife and I go to Seoul quite a lot. To, well, not this year, obviously, but whenever we can, it's, you know, South Korea is very close to Japan. And um, there's a couple of excellent English language bookshops in Seoul that have um, translations of local writers. And I picked this up in one of those shops. Young Moon Lee was. This book was not shortlisted, I think, for the Independent International Prize in twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen, um, and he's been nominated for like the the International Man Booker and stuff like that as well. So he's, you know, big, big, big name in in South Korea, but I'd never really heard of him. And just picked this up because it it's got a Japanese connection, so it's set in uh, in nineteen forty four. In a, a prison in Fukuoka in Japan, where um, Koreans, mostly Koreans, are being held prisoner, are being held in the prison um, with Japanese guards. Um, so there's a lot of Koreans in Japan before the war anyway, studying and, and working. But there's also a certain amount of probably slave labor is about the only way you can describe it of um, prisoners of war or people from occupied Korea being taken over to, to work in Japan. So this this book's kind of set in that world, and obviously it's because of that it's it's very dark, it's very brutal and depressing, and it's yeah the sort of relationship between the Korean prisoners and the the Japanese guards who are you know it's the height of the war it's forty four so the American bombers are coming over all the time and the war is sort of not going well for Japan, but in amongst all this um the sort of friendship's the wrong word but a sort of relationship develops between a, a Japanese guard and a Korean prisoner who is the prisoner is a, a poet and it's he's a real poet it's like a real life person the whole most of the story is fictionalized but he's a real guy with that, that really wrote poems Yoon dong Dongju is his name and while sort of investigating escape attempts and investigating the murder of a guard this other guard sort of uncovers all this poetry that's been written and these the prisoners have been using solitary confinement to translate books into korean so that prisoners can read books and things like count of monte cristo those those kind of books it's always the *Count of monte cristo when it's a prison story but yeah, it's basically about in, in the heart of all this absolute brutality and the you know the violence and the physical torture, and it's just horrific to read, is this candle, this flame of, of literature and, and poetry in particular, keeping people alive, giving people hope, and yeah, like with, with the Ulysses book, sort of that message for me, certainly um, in the midst of this this horrible year of Get back into reading. There's escape in, in reading. There's escape in literature. There's positivity and there's beauty and there's there's hope within literature. Um, is very much what this what the investigation is about.
0: Because it was interesting. I read a I read a review of it, and I think at the time when it was written, and it was I think it was drawn comparisons. I'm not sure if it was the UK or, or the United States. You know this idea of stopping. I think it was the UK stopping uh, stopping prisoners from getting access to books. As if, you know, it wasn't enough that people were locked up for whatever they had done, that when, when they were there, you weren't even allowing them access to literature, which, you know, would appall most people.
1: I don't know if it would appall most people. You get a lot of people like, I can't believe prisoners have got access to TV. You know, that that, you get you get a lot of that, and I guess books would come under that. I mean, with it, within the book, it's, the way they justify it is any book's, that the prisoners have are written in Korean, and the guards can't read Korean, so they go, you know, automatically because we can't read it, it must be subversive. So burn it and get rid of it. And it's they're sort of permanently terrified of what might be written down and what these these books might contain. But because it's poetry as well, they they you know they they memorize these poems and they they're reciting them. And it's just that the power of the of the written word and the power of language it sort of goes back to like the oral poetry before writing was even a thing just that you can do what you want to somebody's body but you can't ever quite reach into their into their heart or into their mind and and get that part that literature affects
0: and i suppose you know even just reflecting on the the order of the day it's not mentioned in the book but you know that period in germany where obviously there was you know book burning and i suppose that most Dictatorships—it's the it's the written word. It's ideas that they are most afraid of because those are the things that challenge their orthodoxy. So it's always writers, university professors, intellectuals who are jailed and executed, and their work is burned, destroyed, banned, prescribed for those reasons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As uh, what was his name, Woody Guthrie used to have on his guitar. You know, this machine kills fascists. <laughs> it's a powerful, powerful thing.
0: When I last spoke to you, obviously, uh, as I said at the start of the, the podcast, that you, you know, your memoir had just come out, but over the last few months, have you, over and above your, your own work uh, in terms of your, your full time job, have you been able to get back into writing or are you working on anything else just now?
1: To an extent, <laughs> sort of another depressing part of the year. Yeah, I, I wrote a thing over the summer. Um, last, last year in 2019, I went to um, Seattle and Portland in America in a sort of um, grunge pilgrimage. Um, so I'm a huge fan of grunge music and stuff from the 90s. So I went and did that and wrote a, a travel book about it. But um, there have been no, no, not much interest in that, shall we say, as, as of now. So I wrote that over the summer. But yeah, beyond that, there's a few things going on. But um, it's because I'm teaching, like I, I teach at a university. So I'm teaching from home. I'm sitting at my desk on Zoom, like nine to five, plus sitting at my desk doing all the marketing. And then he gets to the weekend and I'm like, right, let's sit at the desk and see if we can get 3,000 words, 4,000 words done. And at some point you just have to go, you know what, I'm going out into the garden. I'm just going to lie down somewhere and, and do nothing. Um, so big hat tip to anybody who's managed to write coherent work this year because I've definitely struggled.
0: I think, is, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier, it kind of affects different people in different ways. You know, some people have found they could read more, some people they could read less and it's probably the same with writing some people have been able to to write and then other people for a variety of reasons have found that more difficult so i suppose it's it's a challenge for everyone this year
1: absolutely i mean the, the, probably the only decent thing i actually got done this year in terms of writing was writing about not being able to write during lockdown i wrote a big piece on uh this up on my website about sort of not being able to do anything and then ended up watching um all of the marvel movies sort of in chronological order over over a stupidly short period and sort of disappearing down this not particularly healthy rabbit hole with that. So, yeah, writing about lockdown seems to be the only productive thing I can do at the moment.
0: Well, listen, it's been, it's been good chatting to you on the 12 days of Bookmas and obviously once we sign off, I'll look forward to getting another email from you in half an hour saying, can we do it again? And I've got two different <laughs> books to talk about. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, I'm gonna do the, the twelve books of uh, of New Year and then do something at Easter and <laughs> change the change them every time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Twelve Days of Bookness, a special read all about it podcast series that is so special it even has its own theme tune. You can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, which will help other book lovers find us. And I hope you can join me, Paul Cuddy, on the next episode. In the meantime, keep reading.